0: You're listening to sermon audio from grace mosaic a congregation of the grace dc network in northeast dc for more information about our church visit us online at gracemosaic.org i come this morning to preach on the subject of a song of faith recently i had the opportunity with my 10 year old son oscar to go on an amazing adventure across the country in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. It was a curated father-son trip, and on our first morning after many delayed flights and four hours of sleep, we drove three and a half hours up the mountains, wound up at 9,000 feet of elevation, and dropped immediately into a field day of athletics that culminated in something called a ropes course. Now some of you will know what that is, but some human beings like to string up ropes and wires in trees. And then they like to suspend themselves on said ropes and wires with other ropes and harnesses and carabiners. Maybe you're one of those people, maybe not. I I don't declare to be one of those people myself. (laughs) And as we prepare to traverse this uh, mighty ropes course, we were given an orientation from the guides uh, so that we would know the safety measures and procedures that were in place for us. It was made known to us that we would be, while suspended in the air, held at all times by harnesses and carabiners and ropes with backup safety measures and other things. See, the guides have been doing this for a long time and they just showed us their stuff on the ropes course and they were completely free. They were just joyful with a lightness of being because they knew to trust the things that were holding them in place. They just had a joy about them, you see. But back to us, back to myself and Oscar, okay? (laughs) Uh, Our minds were told certain truths intellectually about carabiners and ropes and harnesses. I believed them. But as I strapped on the harness around my body, and as I fastened the carabiners and our ropes and I climbed the full length of a telephone pole with metal pegs on the side, I realized that my armpits and my forehead and my hands did not believe in carabiners or ropes or harnesses, you see. I didn't trust the things that held me in place. Many of us say we believe things in life But when the rope's course of reality hits us through trials and losses and debilitating depressions and failures in the sheer dread and overwhelm of living in a broken world, when you are metaphorically way up high, looking way down low, do you feel secure in your body, in your heart, deep down in you? And we may say things, we may be the kind of people that believe things like, Jesus is Lord, so everything's going to be all right. We may be spiritual and not religious people who believe things like things will get better and everything happens for a reason. And uh, Well, the problem is when the rope's course of reality hits us, how well do those statements serve you? Psalm 16 is a song about faith, or as we can render that word, trust in God. David sings his way into a posture of trust. We've been exploring this summer how the psalms are given to us to sing our ways into different postures before God. So I explored with you a couple weeks ago that the psalm is given to explore deep pain in God's presence and the lamentful emotions and fear and anger and all of that. But that's not all the Psalms do. They are also given to us to help sing our souls back into a place of trust in the presence of a good God, in a good world, with a good future. And that sure conviction is supposed to free us to live with a lightness of being, free and and joyful knowing that what holds us is sure. We often think that faith is like an automatic thermostat, that when it gets too hot in the room or too cold, it'll just bump up and and meet us in our place of need. But we see in Psalm 16 that faith is a dance and an interaction between intentional practice and beautiful experience. We both engage the practices of faith and experience the fruit of faith. And so I wanna explore those dimensions of faith today. And I wanna explore this Psalm in a what I'll call five-part sermonic movement. Now, I didn't say a five-point sermon, because that's not how I'm labeling it. This is a five-part sermonic movement. And like these parts, like themes of a sonata or a symphony are interwoven and build on one another. And, and the note-takers in the room will be pleased that I have labeled this five-part sermonic movement all with the letter P. There is the prayer, there is the people, there's the provision, there's the presence, and there's the promise. And not only that, I've summarized it in a summary statement, okay? All right? The song of faith begins with the prayer. It leans on the people. It rests in the provision. It practices the presence, and it rejoices in the promise. All right? So first, the prayer. The song of faith begins with a prayer. Preserve me, O God. For in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Faith or trust in God finds its genesis in a spirit of need. Prayer is the natural outflow of the human heart towards the divine. It flows from the most basic posture of the human heart laid bare, which can be summarized as help. It is the posture most fundamental to being a human being. From the, mother, from the moment we are taken out of our mother's body, we begin to wail. We begin to cry. And what does that wail essentially mean? Help me. <laughs> what is this place? I'm overwhelmed by my circumstances. This hurts. Ouch. Hurt. Help. The Psalms themselves are full of these kinds of prayers. Save me. Deliver me. Hear me. Rescue me. Preserve me. A.K.A. Help. And as I said a couple weeks ago, I believe that the shorter and more guttural prayers that arrive from our hearts that are not polished or neatly formulated, those are the ones most precious to God, because they come straight from the heart. And we don't know what kind of situation David is dealing with in Psalm 16. It doesn't tell us. We don't know if it's an acute crisis or just one of those everyday crises we experience in a broken world. But David, even though he is the king, the one who has all the worldly resources at his disposal, the one who more than anyone else should be self-assured that he's okay. He's got money, he's got fame, he's got power. He's at the top of his game. He's at the top of his society, the place many of us are running towards, thinking it will supply us with that longed for security. But here he is as the king, recognizing that he needs help. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I need thee every hour. (laughs) In you I take refuge. The, The grammar of the Hebrew indicates to us that David is saying that he has already made the Lord his refuge and that's why he's praying such, meaning he has placed his life into God's hands. He has placed his heart behind the fortress of who God is. The other alternative to that is placing your life in your own hands and hoping that you can hang on. And that might seem like a sensible idea for a while if you come from economic privilege and you have education and you're smart and you can make life go the way you want it to go smoothly for a time. But eventually you will find that your own hands cannot hold your life. You will find like holding, uh, trying to hold your center of gravity on the ropes course, you need something else to hold you. After I had moved to D.C., I share, and I've shared this story with many of you, during my transition here, I immediately got plopped down into a church, <laughs> and Pastor Russ went on sabbatical, and I started dealing with a lot of anxiety in my life. And I wouldn't have said that I was anxious. I didn't necessarily cognitively think I was anxious, but I kept getting nauseous. I kept getting sick. I kept having problems. And so I went to see a counselor in the, in the neighborhood. And she was, she was an older woman. She was a D.C. native. She was probably the most direct counselor I've ever met with in my life. And I think she was just a little exasperated by me over and over again, complaining about my anxiety about being a pastor. And she just looks at me directly, and she said to this, let, let me ask you a question. Who do you think called you to this work? Was it you or was it God? And I said, like a good Sunday school boy, well, it was God. She said, "Mm mm-hmm, now integrate that into your life. (laughs) Remember that you didn't get here by yourself. Remember that your life is not in your own hands. That's essentially what David is doing by placing himself in the refuge of God. David says, I have no good apart from you meaning this world is yours, God. You are the Lord. I might be the king, but you're the Lord. I am your servant, and anything good in my life is sourced and is dependent upon you. There is a deep spirit of humility and dependency. So many forces in our society in particular drive us away from the posture of neediness and dependency. We shame people in our culture who are needy, who are dependent on others for help. But the Lord Jesus said, blessed are the poor. (laughs) Blessed are the poor in spirit. The pathway to faith begins here with a prayer of need, a prayer of humility, a prayer of understanding our own deficiency and recognizing God's sufficiency. So the prayer of faith begins with a prayer of need. But David recognizes that in this life of faith, in this journey of faith, he's reliant, he's dependent, and he's leaning on other people besides himself because the song of faith leans on the people. That's next, the people. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrow of those who run after another God shall multiply. Psalm 16 explores that there are two kinds of people of faith. Notice that I didn't say there's people of faith and there's people with no faith. Everyone has faith everyone is placing their ultimate trust in something. Psalm 16 is just simply showing us that there are those who put their faith in the Lord and Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the covenant, or that there are those who put their faith in something or someone else. David finds delight in his family of faith. Do you notice that in verse three? The saints in the land in whom all his delight, the community of faith that bolsters and guides his own trust. He finds them to be delightful. Do you find the people of God to be delightful? Because he knows he can't make it alone. He needs help, he needs guidance, he needs people to worship with, to point him back to the Lord as the supreme reality of his life. And any form of the Christian faith that leads you away from community and more into yourself, not deeper in dependency on community, is a false form of the Christian faith. And it will degrade your faith eventually. The psalm then takes a somber, compassionate tone towards those who put their faith in some other thing. The language of the Hebrew calls our minds back to Genesis 3 with the curses of the fall. Sorrows will multiply. It brings language from there. That those who walk on a path separated from the creator God, the faithful God, the maker God, the God of the Bible, will lose their way ultimately money, fame, power, rationality, scientism, idols, the sorrows will multiply. There is a quote that has become ubiquitous with time and I've shared it before, but it seems like a timely time to share it again. The the writer the novelist, David Foster Wallace, who was an agnostic, not a person of Christian faith, shared these words to a graduating class at Kenyon College. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. But he says much of what you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap your real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Uh. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart. And you will always end up feeling stupid. A fraud. Always on the verge of being found out. See, idols, those things we worship besides the true God, will always bring us to a place of sorrow. Because they cannot hold our lives when we are suspended in the air. David is living in a context where alternative faiths are nurtured by alternative rituals, all right? In this case, drinking drink offerings of blood and taking the names of gods on his lips. Now, we might not have such rituals today in Washington, D.C. But don't be fooled, it is no different. Alternative faiths are still nurtured by alternative rituals. Be they other formal religions with houses of worship or more covert houses of worship, like the investment banker's office, or the beauty salon, or the bar, or anywhere else where people are buying the security that another god is selling. People of faith were most tempted towards idols in the story of the bible Why? because they were afraid of not securing their provisions in life. People turn towards false worship to satisfy the great longings of their heart, the great questions, will I have enough? Will I have a future? And I think this is why David next turns to the provision of faith. Three, the provision. The song of faith rests in the provision. He says in one of the most beautiful scriptures, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Instead of clamoring for the security craved by those running after false God, David finds a sweet contentment in the God who has provided for him everything. And now what the psalm, what David does is he uses two different metaphors of provision. First, there is the age-old metaphor of food and drink, portion and cup. Those things that still drive so much of our existence as humans, our appetites, making sure we're going to have something on the plate. And David is saying, the Lord is his satisfaction for his appetites. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, someone said. But the other metaphor that David uses is land and inheritance, which was a huge factor for people in the ancient Near East and is still a huge factor for people today when it comes to long-term wealth and sustainment of your name. David is alluding with these words like lot and, and boundary line, He's alluding to a part in the biblical story where after Israel is taken out of Egypt, they are led by fiery cloud and pillar into what? The promised land. And in the book of Joshua, you will find chapter after chapter of land allotment, lines, lots, inheritance. And we are led to this theme back when Israel was waiting for God to portion out their promised future land given to them different plots and David is using this metaphorically to speak to his security and his position in the Lord no matter the material that he possesses now no matter the land plot that he is living on now he says that God is my portion God has drawn the lines for me I have a beautiful inheritance so no matter what I am going through right now there is a place being prepared for me and it's beautiful No matter the struggle that I'm looking at, no matter the material struggle, the spiritual struggle, the psychological struggle, there is a provision out there for me. All of these words point to the enoughness of God. (laughs) The practice of faith is meditating on the fact that my provision and my future is secured not by my ability to correctly secure those things. They are secured where? In the Lord my present and my future. I have a beautiful inheritance. Does that necessarily mean material riches? No, indeed it doesn't. But it means something so much greater. It means abundant love, joy, satisfactions, the things that money just can't buy. Paul would later say in Philippians 4, I have learned to be content in whatever situation I face. I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What is that secret? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. David is placing himself in the provision of a God who provides faithfully. But this God doesn't just provide portion and cup and lot and line and boundary and land. He provides counsel and instruction. Verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. Because we don't live by bread alone. We live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And, And God didn't just give David that provision of food and security. He gives David counsel. The counselor is God's spirit, and the thing that God's spirit has breathed out is the word of God. It is literally food for the soul, guidance, rebuke, chastening, instruction, comfort, hope. It is God's invitation to us to hear and receive his counsel. But that same spirit, David says, that has produced the word is deep at work within his heart. See that phrase, verse 7, in the night also my heart instructs me. Now, what this verse is talking about, I think, is not that restless anxiety that keeps you tossing and turning at night. It is those moments of quiet reflection when the Spirit speaks deep in your conscience as you examine your heart and guides you in the way you should go. The same God who spoke Scripture speaks within our hearts. It's not detached from Scripture. It's not detached from community. But the Lord is there, deeply present within our hearts, says David, guiding us as we lay in our beds at night. And that's the next place that David goes is indeed the presence of God. Because the song of faith practices the presence. David says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Later on, he says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. Here's the beautiful interchange between practice and experience. David says something, he says, I have set the Lord always before me. It is such an interesting phrase, because no one can move God around. (laughs) No one can place God before them, but David is saying, I have moved my consciousness to recognize that I live all of my life, quorum deo, before the face of God. To live out that great Rockwell lyric, though, in a totally different way, I always feel like somebody's watching me. (laughs) Not in the creepy sense, but I sense eyes of love on my situation. I sense that God is in the room. <laughs> Not in the sense of, of judgment, but in a sense of deep companionship. It is calling our heart back to the attention of God's presence. There was a famous French monk named Brother Lawrence. And he was a monk who lived in the 15, 1600s. I can't remember the years right now. But he was a soldier, a veteran. He, had, uh, he was crippled from life, from the injuries he suffered in battle, and eventually became a monk. And he wrote this book, or people wrote a book about his teachings called The Practice of the Presence of God. You might know it. This obscure French monk has been translated into countless languages across the world because many people have found him so remarkable. And here's what he says in one of my favorite sections within a new translation. He said, The most sacred, most ordinary, and most necessary practice in the spiritual life is the presence of God. When we practice the presence, we enjoy and become familiar with God's divine company, speaking humbly, looking to him lovingly for support at all time and every moment, without methods or limits, especially during times of temptation, pain, and loneliness and exhaustion. He says, During our work and other activities, even during our reading and writing, no matter how spiritual, we must stop for a brief moment as often as we can to love God deep in our hearts, to savor him, even though it's brief and in secret. Since you are aware that God is present before you during your actions, that he is in the deep center of your soul, why not stop your activities, at least from time to time, to love God, to praise him and ask for help, offer him to your heart? And this practice, he says as I I end this, this practice dissolves gradually and almost unconsciously the self-preoccupation that is such a part of human nature. David, even in the midst of his prayer before God, recognizes God's presence with him. It is, in a sense, like being on the ropes course and recognizing that your guide is immediately in front of you or behind you, that they hold you or that you can hold them. That is what the practice of the presence is like. And then David says, not only that God is present, but that God is at his right hand. And there's several things that this could mean, but one that I think that is powerful is that in the ancient world, when a king went off into battle, he would put his, he would put his most choice soldier right on his right hand as, as the first line of defense, the best fighter, the best defender, the best warrior. And what David is saying is that I in my life right now at my right hand ultimately have the best bodyguard that there ever was. The best bouncer at the entrance to my life or my death is God, standing right here, my defender at my right hand, yeah. practicing the presence. And as David and as we practice that presence, we get to taste this sweet experience of experiencing God's presence, and that takes us into the fullness of joy, says Psalm 16. And finally... As I close, this interwoven song of faith reaches its pinnacle here with the last P, if you remember what it was. I'm sure you do. (laughs) It's the promise. (laughs) The song of faith rejoices in the promise. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. David, like those experienced guides on the ropes course, has now just sung his his heart into a posture of confidence. He knows what holds him in life. He knows the God who holds him. Because freedom and joy come from experiencing the presence of a good God and a good world with a good future. Listen to this, joy is not happiness, right? As we explored some other time in the sanctuary, joy is a supra-emotion. Joy combines all the emotions that we experience, pain, sorrow, anger, everything. But if we combine those emotions to the presence of God, then we have the presence of joy. The God who won't let us go. David is rejoicing in the reality of a present, a personal, a powerful, a promise-keeping God. And David had plenty of evidence in his own experience or in the story of Israel to bolster that claim, that God's love endures forever, that God's steadfast, that he will protect me beyond the veil of death into whatever future lies beyond that veil. But as a Christian seeing Psalm 16, we see more fully what David saw only in part. We got a, full, a more fully painted picture before us Because the Lord set himself in the midst of us in the person of his Son. Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, who lived and died and lived again. And that is why Psalm 16 became so meaningful to the early preachers of the way of Jesus. Isn't it amazing that parts of Scripture preach other parts of Scripture and let you know how they're to be interpreted? And so in the book of Acts chapter 2, at the book of Acts chapter 13, both Peter and Paul take Psalm 16, and they preach it in a new light. They preach these verses, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. In your your presence, there's fullness of joy. And now here's what Peter does. He says to the audience that he's preaching Psalm 16 to, he says, now listen, brothers and sisters, you see, David's grave is right down the street. (laughs) So what did David mean by saying you won't let your holy one see corruption, you won't go down to the pit? David was anticipating another one who would come and another one who would fall down into the pit of death another one who would suffer all the consequences of sin and be taken down into the pit, seemingly seeing corruption for all time, but one who out of the midst of darkness carved a new path of life. You make known to be the path of life. In Jesus Christ, we have the trailblazer of an eternal inheritance. In Jesus Christ, we have a light and life that cannot be distinguished. And therefore, I can place my soul, my refuge in the story of who Jesus is and find that even when I'm I'm knocking on death's doorstep, I know that I will not see corruption beyond the... I I will not ultimately see corruption because he didn't see corruption and I can be confident in my body with my whole self that I will ultimately not be piled up in the meaningless pile of human history, that God has made me all of whom I am, that God will redeem me forever, that God has given his gospel to me. And this is at the heart of faith. But what we find out is that the gospel is even more because I find out I didn't even start my faith, that God is the author and the perfecter of my faith, says Jesus. And faith in the Bible comes to be centered around this one. See, he is the great answer to the prayer of need. He is the gatherer of a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He is the provision from God. His body and blood poured out for us and is our life. He secured a beautiful inheritance for us. He is the very presence of God who tabernacled among us. He is the one in whom all the promises of God find their yes and amen. You see, the, 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 the prayer and the people and the provision and the presence... And the promises they their nexus in the Lord Jesus. So as we practice faith, we practice faith in this one. And we experience the beautiful fruit that comes from knowing him. And in his presence there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Amen.